Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I have always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. Uh, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I'm uh, pleased to welcome you to another Clyburn Chronicles. Uh, this edition is one that I've been looking forward to uh, for some time now. Uh, I uh, uh, wrote my memoirs, as many of you recall, calling it Blessed Experiences. And I said in the memoirs that um, uh, all of my experiences have not been pleasant but I've considered all of them uh, to be blessings. Uh, there is one instance though, uh, maybe more than one, but a particular instance when uh, the experience was pleasant and a blessing. And that was when I met Cerise Davis. I uh, did not know Cerise, I had heard of her campaign and because of South Carolina's relationship with Kansas, now, that relationship has to do with Brown versus Board of Education. That decision, 1954 Supreme Court decision, a lot of people know it as uh, Brown because Brown was from Kansas. Uh, but she was one uh, of five uh, young people, four other cases. Uh, one of them, the original one, coming out of South Carolina. Uh, and, of course, one of those cases came out of Delaware. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit uh, today about the relationship between uh, Kansas and South Carolina uh, and how uh, pleasant uh, and productive uh, the meeting I had with Sharice Davis was. Uh, give a little bit of a background. I was out over in Missouri and had done a little work over there and went over to Kansas. And it was a Sunday morning and we were meeting. Uh, at an African-American church. Uh, and before the service got started, uh, we went uh, into the study uh, with the pastor of the church. Uh, and I was informed by the officers in the church that the pastor was looking forward to meeting me and that he uh, understood that Sharice uh, Davis, then a candidate for Congress, was going to uh, meet me there. But I was warned. Uh, that the pastor uh, uh, would recognize us in the audience, uh, but was uh, uh, probably not going to invite us to, uh, to come to the pulpit or even to speak. And so that's what I was intended to do, except that when we got there, uh, it did not quite happen that way. For some reason, uh, the pastor felt moved uh, to invite us uh, into the pulpit. 
uh, and gave me the mic uh, to introduce Cerise Davis. Uh, and it turned out to be the most blessed experience uh, that one could have in a campaign. Uh, we just had a lot of fun together that day. It was a very productive day. And she was running against uh, a longtime incumbent Republican. And she beat him and got 54% of the vote. And she's now been reelected. Now, they always told me when I came to Congress that, you know, anybody can get elected the first time. You can luck up and do that. But you don't become a real congressman until you get reelected. So, ladies and gentlemen, our guest today on Clyburn Chronicles is a real congressman, Congresswoman Cerise Davis, who is also one of two who became the first Native American women uh, to be elected to Congress. And so I'm so pleased today uh, to have with me on this podcast someone that I've grown uh, to admire and to respect uh, and to have just a whole bunch of emotional feelings for Cerise Davis. Welcome to the uh, Clyburn Chronicles, Cerise. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here with you today. I'm, uh, I always love when we get the chance to, uh, to be together and do these different uh, events and that sort of thing. I, very fond, I have very fond memories of when you, uh, when you are out here. I hope one of these days we get on the other side of this. When we get on the other side of this thing, you can come back out and visit us in Kansas again. I look forward to that. In fact, I want to go back to those same churches we visited together, <laughs> especially that one when the uh, pastor brought us up into the pulpit and handed yeah. me the mic, and I didn't know what in the world I was going to say. Okay. And luckily for me, I had just uh, been reviewing, uh, much because of my staff, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville's notion uh, of this country uh, being great because uh, it has always been able to repair its faults. And I said on that day, I could think of no better way to repair a fault uh, than electing a Native American woman uh, to the United States Congress. Uh, and um, uh, that is what happened. And you've gone on to distinguish yourself uh, very well. And I predict uh, that you are going to be uh, a part of the Democratic Party's leadership uh, in the not too distant future because you've demonstrated uh, a certain uh, amount of your compassion and understanding for other people uh, that I think is a key uh, to being a good Democrat. You know, a lot of people look at us and they compare us to the other side. Uh, the kind of diversity that makes this country what it is. Uh, you're hard pressed to find much of it on the other side of the aisle. The Republican conference, I don't have anything against Republicans. My parents were Republicans, uh, but the current Republican party is a bit vanilla uh, when it comes to uh, uh, its reflection of the country. Uh, we are more, I guess, what you call that, Neapolitan? I don't know what it is, but I do know uh, <laughs> that we are very, very diverse. Now, let's talk a little bit about your first campaign. Uh, it surprised a lot of people. And quite frankly, uh, I'm among that group uh, that was surprised. Uh, I'm not uh, that you won because Emmanuel Cleaver over next door to you told me and then he thought, I think his name was Yoda, was in serious trouble. Uh, and that uh, he thought that you were going to win. 
Uh, and when I met you, I could understand that. But I was still surprised uh, at the size of the victory. What were the issues in that campaign two years ago that you think uh, made you so successful? Yeah, well, there was a couple of things. Um, and I was, I was surprised too. And I think it was because of growing up not feeling, just really not thinking of running for Congress as part of what would be my path. Um, so I would say a couple of big issues. One was that, you know, my predecessor had voted multiple times to try to dismantle um, or completely get rid of the Affordable Care Act, which would mean people with pre-existing conditions losing coverage and, um, you know, People were very, very worked up about that, um, scared about it. And the idea of not having protections for people with pre-existing conditions was just, uh, is unfathomable. And, um, and then I would say the other thing is that my predecessor had come into office as something of a moderate and then uh, on a whole range of issues. And then with, Donald Trump getting elected, uh, my predecessor took a, like veered off to the right very, very hard. And that just doesn't match our district. Um, I think folks want reasonable, pragmatic uh, policy um, solutions to the issues that are facing us. And, um, and then I think also our campaign, we had so many volunteers and people who were helping that were really, our focus was listening to people and trying to figure out, you know, the best solutions are gonna come from community members and people who are living and breathing the uh, impacts of the policies that we get to vote on. And, and so I think that it was a combination of, 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 of those things. Well, that's, uh, that's very interesting. Uh, the fact that uh, those votes being taken uh, by your opponent would just did not fit well uh, with the people of the district. And that is one of the things that we uh, try to get uh, the people to understand uh, that you've got to uh, reflect the sentiments of your district. Uh, and if you do that, uh, you can uh, really be pretty successful. Uh, now, uh, I've just told the people a little bit about you as a congressperson, uh, and you've just told us a little bit about you as a candidate. How about share with us exactly who Sharice Davis is? And you know, I'm one of those people, you know me, it's uh, his, history, it instructs me. So I need to know your history. Start out with birth and bring us forward. <laughs> I was born. <laughs> now I'm mom. So I was raised by a single mom um, who was uh, in the army for 20 years. So from before I was born until after I got out of high school. And um, it's funny because so I'm, I'm Ho-Chunk, which is a tribe in Wisconsin. Most of, a lot of my family lives in Wisconsin. Um, and that's where uh, most of our tribal members are. And uh, lots of folks will say, well, how did Ho-Chunk end up in Kansas? And uh, it's because my mom retired while she was stationed at Fort Leavenworth. 
And um, I have two younger brothers and Kansas has been known for good public schools uh, for a long time. And so when my mom retired, she wanted to make sure that my brothers um, also had uh, access to good public schools. So I, I graduated from Leavenworth High School and, um, and then, and then, I, you know, I, I'm a first generation college student. I worked the whole time I was in school. Um, and it took me about four years, but I got an associate's degree at Johnson County Community College, which is uh, in the district that I get to represent now. And then uh, about four years later, I got my bachelor's degree at the University of Missouri in Kansas City, which is just, you know, one of the, it's one of the good regional schools here. And um, I worked the whole time I was in school. I did, and I did all kinds of jobs. I worked at Sonic for five years. I've worked at Chuck E. Cheese. I've worked at Domino's. I worked at the Marriott downtown as a banquet bartender. Um, and then I got into law school and I went to Cornell for law school, which felt like, um, it just felt like, a, it felt like I was in a movie, you know, here this, uh, this kid who, was a first generation college student and was working at the Marriott, uh, got into Cornell for law school. And so I felt very lucky. And I, when I got out there, um, I feel like I hit my stride in life when I went to law school because it was, time, it was the first time that I really ever got to focus just on, on school. Uh, and I came back home after that and I worked at a big law firm and I did mergers and acquisitions and financing. And uh, that wasn't, that wasn't my calling. <laughs> I learned a lot, but um, I ended up doing community and economic development uh, with tribal communities, native and native communities. And uh, I really liked that work. But I also saw that not a lot of people know how the federal government works, like most people. And I don't mean native people. I just mean most people don't know how. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I, I decided to apply to be a White House fellow. And I got the chance to do that uh, with uh, in the at, at the end of the Obama administration. And I was at the Department of Transportation. And I know you, uh, one of the things that I always appreciate when you talk about um, making sure that we're taking care of rural communities and communities that um, don't traditionally get resources to increase access to stuff, whether it's broadband or um, now with COVID access to testing. And so I think that uh, I learned a lot about that kind of stuff when I was doing the fellowship. And then I came back home and eventually, eventually decided to run for this, uh, run for this seat. Well, you know, I want you to tell that story because I think it is so remarkable that, you know, a lot of people watch politics from afar. They turn on their televisions and they see, uh, maybe uh, you might glance at C-SPAN and you see, uh, things happening. You see the press conferences, you see all of the in interviews, and then you sort of put politics out there as being something uh, there's untouchable. It's, uh, there's some extraordinary people. These are just ordinary people who 
with the right preparation, uh, the right kind of what I call steadfastness, uh, and can stay focused, uh, can do extraordinary things with just ordinary people. Uh, and I want all of our listeners to know that you too can be uh, as much a part of this process as anybody else. It, all it takes uh, is a little uh, a bit of steadfastness. Uh, and so I wanted you to tell that because, you know, to work your way through school to be the, the first uh, in the family. Now, I wasn't the first in, in my family to graduate from college, but my mother uh, uh, graduated from college uh, when I was 13 years old. Uh, she was she, she's a college graduate, uh, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, I had one of my brothers, we were spending the weekend together, and we were talking about uh, how we went to college uh, as a, uh, 11 and 12 year olds. Uh, and that's because my moms used to go to class taking us with her. And we'd be running up and down the hallways while she was uh, in school. Uh, so uh, I can't say that I'm the first uh, generation, uh, but I was here. Yeah. Uh, and I was <laughs> present uh, when she got her degree. And, and because she too uh, had the same kind of yearning you had. Uh, but my mom's also a beautician, and she was kind of interested. When she got a degree, everybody thought that she was going to uh, go teach school or something. Uh, she took that degree, put it in a frame, and hung it on her, the wall of her beauty shop uh, and stayed right in that beauty shop. She just wanted to have a college degree. And that's why you hear me often talk, when I talk in our caucus, that the fact of the matter is uh, we have to prepare young people for what I call post-secondary education. Not necessary to go to a liberal arts college. You went to a liberal arts college, you did extremely well, and you're doing well with electricians and plumbers and bricklayers and landscapers. They don't need a liberal arts degree or the Almeida Clyburns of the world, my mother who wanted to be a beautician and had a beauty shop with 16 operators at one time. Oh, wow. But she didn't need to go to college to do that. She was doing that before she ever went to college. So that's what's so important about it. And that's the kind of stuff that makes us who we are, uh, these experiences. Uh, let's talk about this year's campaign. You got reelected. Uh, and then, therefore, taking your place as a real uh, congressperson. You know what? Uh, were the issues any different this time? Well, it's so funny that you, when you were saying that about being a real uh, congressperson now, is that uh, I actually hadn't heard that before, and um, it was it was right after the right after the election, and I was calling some folks to say thank you for your help. You know, and like I expressed some gratitude to people who helped me in my reelection efforts. And um, at some point during that, uh, you know, me and the, the person on my team, we're on, we're, I mean, it's still a Zoom, we do everything by Zoom still, but um, I was, I said something to the effect of, now this feels like a real job. And then, and I was like, I don't mean, of course, like, being a member of Congress the entire time feels like a very real job, like it's a lot of work. And I said, but the thing is, if 
if it was only one term, it would feel like that thing I did for a couple of years. Now yeah. going into a second term and the, the starting point of, of like we have a team in place already. I, I know a lot more about uh, how, you know, if I have my uh, original piece of legislation that I wanna push through, building support for that, getting it, um, getting it out there, there's some, our constituent services, there's so much now that I know. Um, so I, I do feel like I'm a real, a real congressperson now uh, going into a second term. The, the campaign this time, well, for the biggest difference felt um, like the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, that was the top priority of everybody that I talked to. Um, it also was that I, the conversations I was having were a lot more remote or we were doing the thing where we're outside with masks on, standing far apart. And sometimes it felt like we were hollering at each other to try to, um, you know, for folks to share what was going on. And I think that even though healthcare was the top priority in the 2018 cycle, it, the pandemic just highlighted that and made it that much more prominent and important to folks. And, and then you, and then all the small business. So I'm on the small business committee and all the small business owners that we have who are just struggling to keep their doors open, um, to keep people on payroll, that sort of thing has, it's just dominates every single conversation. Like how are people coping and trying to, to stay afloat during this unprecedented health and like health crisis and economic crisis. Uh, it's been a, it's been a, like a very tumultuous first term and, the, and I am sure, you know, until we, until everybody gets vaccinated and we're really on the other side of this, I think it'll probably continue to be um, a very tumultuous time because our country is going through a tumultuous time. Absolutely. You know, we were taping this, um, the podcast uh, on the day uh, that um, uh, the uh, director of the General Services Administration has uh, um, uh, finally relented uh, and decided that uh, she was going to do what the law dictates uh, and um, uh, start this transition uh, for the new president. Uh, and I think we will both agree uh, that uh, two years ago, when you won, we uh, uh, Democrats took the majority uh, in the House again uh, for the first time uh, in a long time uh, over the issue uh, of health care. Uh, this time, uh, I think that this president that has just been defeated, uh, whether he acknowledges it or not, uh, got defeated over a issue, an issue that was really about healthcare. And that's what COVID-19 is all about. Uh, my dad was a minister who used to say to me all the time, you pray for good health and strength. Uh, and if you got some modicum of good health and strength, you get off your knees and go out and work. Uh, that's what you want. Uh, you aren't gonna have a, a good, or be able to get a good education if your health is not good. You aren't gonna keep a job if your health is not good. 
so good health is the foundation upon which all these things are built. And COVID-19 is not just killing people, but it is rendering a whole new group of people with a pre-existing condition. And that is so critical today because on top of uh, diabetes and heart attacks and uh, all other things that will give you uh, or make you a, a, a pre-existing conditioner, COVID-19 with all of its uh, aftermath uh, will create a whole new category. So going forward, uh, I'm convinced that that's what people had in mind uh, when they elected uh, uh, Joe Biden. And he was elected in uh, what his own staffer said, uh, probably the most secure and the most fair election we've ever had uh, in this country. And I've been around for a while, and I can kind of attest to that. So this campaign uh, is launching us, I think, uh, in a direction I called it of getting back on track and to continue our pursuit of a more perfect union. You know from your life experiences, like I know from my life experiences, uh, this country is not perfect. Uh, but we should always be uh, in pursuit of that perfection. Uh, and we got off track uh, four years ago. We seem to be back on track now uh, with this election. Uh, I've been watching the uh, so far the appointments uh, that have been made. They all seem to be good people who understand uh, what this country's promise is all about, not just what the country is all about. Mm. A lot of us know what this country is about. And what this country is about these days uh, is not the same thing that the country's promise is all about. Mm. And so we are in pursuit of a promise. Uh, and we need to uh, continue that pursuit. Your election uh, was a continuance of that. Uh, you and Deb Holland from down in New Mexico. Uh, that's what it was all about. Uh, and so here we are. New administration. What are you looking forward to uh, uh, after January 20th with this administration? What uh, are the issues that you think uh, your constituents uh, want to see this country uh, or the direction of new administration take uh, to relate to their dreams and aspirations? Yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good question. And, um, uh, I, I just always appreciate your uh, the way you lay stuff out because I think that um, you know the way the, the way that the Biden administration is going to be moving forward is going to be so um, so much smoother um, and less chaotic and uh, and and really that focus on the promise of our country I really like that. Um, and I also, I do want to mention, um, because uh, the, the select committee is something that you work on with the, uh, that you're like really taking the lead on making sure that our, our coronavirus response, um, that there's accountability in that. And that um, uh, I think that that's something that people really want to 
that people really want to know is that, you know, we're in our efforts to do as much as we can for people that we also keep track of what's gone right, that, that our resources are being appropriately um, uh, utilized and in the most effective way. Um, so I appreciate your work on that because I, I think that in the Biden administration, um, my hope is that, first of all, my hope is that we can get uh, another bipartisan relief package because we've been able to do it. I know we can. Um, I just also know that you know, folks like Mitch McConnell uh, walking away from the negotiating table is not gonna, is not going to be the way that we move um, that we move forward. And I think that uh, a Biden administration will, um, I hope, help calm our country um, and calm our politics a bit, so that we can start to actually um, come together uh, more often. And then the other thing I think about because I had a chance to be, uh, when, I, when I was serving as a White House fellow, um, I was around over the transition. Uh, I was, I was, I was uh, in the Department of Transportation uh, at the beginning of the current administration. And uh, our country has something that it's so unique. The federal government is the largest organization in the world and, and our a peaceful and effective transition from one administration to the next is, um, I mean, it's a pretty phenomenal process. And so I'm glad that that's getting going because we've already seen that President-elect Biden is doing the things that we need so that on day one, as soon as he gets sworn in, we have an administration that's that's ready to uh, to to stop this coronavirus pandemic that's ready to get us back on track and get our economy back up and going and thriving again. I think that the focus on healthcare is clearly gonna be there based on all the things he's doing with the, his coronavirus task force that he's put in place. And then, uh, and then also investments in infrastructure, I think are gonna be uh, a huge, a huge piece of what I, that's what I, I'm, a huge piece of what I'm looking forward to going forward. I know, you know, the president-elect Biden has ha, uh, been sharing his Build Back Better plan. And, um, and I really think investments in infrastructure, which includes things like broadband um, and rural broadband and getting broadband to communities that have not um, traditionally uh, been the recipients of the amount of resources that they need. Uh, and then, and then helping our, you know, helping our small businesses, our entrepreneurial communities thrive. Like I think that the the Biden administ a Biden administration is going to have. Um, I just think it's going to have such a strong impact on all those things. I think so. You know, uh, it's interesting. You uh, let's talk a little bit about this whole notion of broadband and rural communities. You know, I um, uh, I also uh, share. Uh, the Rural Broadband Task Force. We put that task force together to focus uh, on broadband in rural communities. You know, um, uh, I often share uh, with audiences uh, a little prayer uh, that was given by a Tennessee uh, farmer uh, one night when he said to the people in the congregation, brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. The greatest thing on earth is to have the love of God in your heart. 
And the next greatest thing is to have electricity in your house. Now, that's what was important to that man and his community uh, back in the middle of the 20th century. Today, the most important thing, uh, and I think the next greatest thing would be to have broadband in every home. Now, you and I have worked together uh, to get this $100 billion broadband program that will build out 100% coverage of broadband uh, over the next 10 years. Now, that has passed the House. And of course, it's sitting over in uh, Ms. McConnell's graveyard. But what I think this administration, the next administration has got to do uh, as it relates to broadband uh, is we need to uh, get Grace Ming's bill, Grace Ming from up in New York, uh, for hotspots. We need to scatter hotspots as an interim. Uh, do it in such a way that we can build upon that in order to make, uh, get the 100% coverage. Uh, so that we can immediately get uh, telehealth uh, into these communities and get online education for our children uh, because schools are closing for a second time. A, young, a lot of young people are going to lose a second year of school. Uh, so we've got to get online learning uh, into these rural communities. And so that, to me, is what this administration has got to look at. You know, I told somebody the other day, uh, when we start talking about infrastructure, it just can't be roads and bridges. Uh, and in some instances, maybe water and sewers, but it's got to be broadband. In fact, we used to call the internet the information highway. Mm -hmm. So let's teach the, uh, treat the information highway the same way that we treat the interstate highway. Mm -hmm. uh, that, to me, is uh, what the uh, infrastructure uh, program uh, has got to be, uh, uh, be like going forward. And I'm also, uh, I want to see a network of federally qualified community health centers. Oh. Uh, that to me would be the ultimate safety net. Now we've passed that bill also. Uh, that's a bill that Bernie Sanders carried over in the Senate and I uh, carried on the House side and uh, we have, uh, we've passed that. Uh, and so it's now sitting over in the, uh, the Senate's graveyard. Uh, so if we just ask, this new administration to pick those two issues up uh, and use that formula that, um, that we call 10-20-30, saying at least 10% of all this money must be spent in those communities where 20% uh, of the mortal population has been stuck beneath the poverty level for the last 30 years. That's what 10-20-30 is all about. Uh, Biden has that in his platform. And you and I got to work together and to make sure uh, these communities that we represent, uh, these rural communities, uh, don't get left out uh, of this funding going forward. Yeah. That, to me, uh, is what this is all about. And finally, let me say this about uh, this, um, uh, the HEROES Act. Well, let's just look at the, the CARES Act. The CARES Act is already out there. You may have seen uh, that Secretary of the Treasury Mnuchin uh, has asked uh, Mr. Powell uh, over the Fed to send that money back over $450 million. The bulk of that money is in what we call the Main Street Project. That is to get money to small businesses on Main Street. Mm. So what Mnuchin did, and I don't know why they did this, 
Uh, they will not allow any money to go out. The smallest loan that they will let out now is $250,000. Most of the businesses you and I uh, work with, they don't need to uh, be on the land for $250,000. They might be able to do what needs to be done with their business to put a patio on their restaurant so people can dine outside uh, with thirty-five dollars or $40,000. Uh, so uh, what I'm hopeful is that we will move immediately to reprogram that money uh, so that we can take care of these small businesses, small farmers and small Main Street businesses. They don't need to go uh, borrow $250,000 that they got to pay back if they don't need but fifty. So that is the kind of thing we're going to have to do. But that tells you a little bit about this administration. Uh, I'm going to be pushing uh, the new administration to reprogram that money. Uh, and uh, and put it in the law uh, that these uh, loans uh, must go to people irrespective of how small they are. Mm. Uh, if people can justify that's what they need to keep their businesses going and keep people employed, they shouldn't make them borrow more than that. Yeah. And um, I think one of the pieces that I heard from so many small business owners was, was the difficulty of, uh, because the treasury department had, they said one thing and then, you know, they were like, here's the guidance, here's how you access this program. Then they changed it. Then they changed it again. And I think that, um, you know, when we've, we've got small business owners who literally like, the, the thing that they're, I mean, uh, uh, salon, you know, yeah. somebody who's amazing at, uh, at the, uh, at, at styling and, and all those kinds of things. And then, you know, their expertise is not being an accountant or a lawyer that can, uh, just up and change the paperwork that they're doing. Um, and the numbers that they're sending to the federal government for some of these programs. So I think, um, the, the dollar amounts, and then also making sure that we're not asking people to do to to do too many different things. Like changing it is it's too much for too many people to be able to to get access to those programs. So yeah, that's, that's so true. We need to do that with almost everything. My, my, that's why I think ten, twenty, thirty is mm -hmm. so unique. Mm -hmm. You said okay. We got a hundred million dollars here. At least ten percent of it, ten million, must go into communities where twenty percent or more of the population has been stuck beneath the poverty level for the last thirty years. That is very simple, very straightforward. But for some strange reason, people get in the government. They say, "Well, we need to do this and and that formula ought to kick in this." And you look around. You got people uh, having to study calculus in order to decide how much money they're qualified for. No, we don't need to do that. We need just to be very simple and straightforward. And, and that way you keep people out of trouble. When you start doing all these calculus and stuff, uh, that's when you get in all kinds of trouble as to how are you spending the money. Straightforward, 10% of the money for 20% of the people been stuck in the poverty level for 30 years. That's simple and straightforward. And that's the kind of stuff I think we've got to do. Uh, and I'm looking forward uh, to working with you uh, to get some of these things done. But before 
we bring Dunit, uh, bring this uh, podcast to an end. I want to point something out because I I, I think your uh, your race this year uh, points something out that I think people need to begin to understand, and that is. We've got to get engaged in this political process. People have got to start listening, start attending community meetings, and start voting. It was kind of interesting to me. I talked about you again, that 54% uh, last time or, uh, and 53% uh, this time. But the interesting thing to me is this. Your opponent this time got 44% of the vote, but that 44% was 174,000 votes, 4,000 votes more than your 54% was two years earlier. That's what it looks like to me. Yeah. You won with uh, 54%, over 170,000 votes in 2018, this time, your opponent got 174,000, which was only 44%. That's how big the turnout was. Mm -hmm. And so what we have to understand that if only the people who voted for you and gave you that 54% victory two years ago, if only that same group had come back, you would have lost by 4,000 votes. So we've got to impress upon people that we've got to stay engaged. Mm. We've got to increase our numbers. We've got to get more people involved in this process because those progressive people like yourself are not going to be able to stay in the Congress because as Martin Luther King Jr. told us in his letter from the Birmingham City Jail, he wrote uh, to the effect, or these about the exact words, that he was coming to the conclusion that the people of ill will in our society are making a much better use of time than the people of goodwill. Mm. That to me is critical. The people of ill will are making good use of their time. Uh, and we've got to make sure that the people of goodwill go out uh, and do better because uh, these programs uh, are not going to uh, come to fruition. All you got to do is look at the results of the presidential. Uh, nobody thought uh, that we would get that bigger vote this year. We got a bigger vote than anybody thought we would ever get in this country. Uh, and so I think it's very important uh, about that. Now, before we leave, uh, tell us about your new book coming out. Oh. <laughs> um. Well, I have, I, I have a, a children's book that'll be coming out next year. And it's, um, it kind of tells a bit about the journey, my journey uh, to running for Congress and, and winning a seat in Congress. But it's, it's really, I feel like a story about how each one of us has our own path and journey and that there's no one right way to do things and actually I loved earlier when you were talking about making making sure that people understand that um, for some folks going to college and 
you know, whether it's a liberal arts degree or whatever is the right path for them. But for some folks, like working with your hands and building stuff and, uh, you know, whether being a carpenter or electrician, uh, it, like that might be the right path for somebody. And, and I feel like that's probably like the main takeaway and why I, like what I was trying to convey in, in my, in my kid's book is that, you know, I, I worked in fast food. Uh, I also went to law school. I also did mixed martial arts. Um, and, and that, you know, all of those things, like, they're just part of my path. And I hope that all of us uh, can, can see and learn um, what the right path is for us. And I think that there's so many ways to be successful, but at the end of the day, each one of us individually has to decide what success means uh, for ourselves. Well, thank you for doing that, especially uh, making it a children's book. Um, uh, I thought about uh, when I heard about your book, I thought about uh, John Lewis. I think that John Lewis's, uh, you know, his book, Walking with the Wind, yeah. was a great book for me. Uh, and a lot of people, but it was when he uh, did the, the comic book, yeah, is what yeah. I call it, uh, that he called March. Uh, that to me is what explained John Lewis to young people. And that's one reason John became such a hero to, I mean, I'm talking about uh, third and fourth graders, yeah. uh, because uh, he put that book, put John Lewis right at their level. And so thank you so much for doing uh, this book. And hopefully uh, there'll be a lot of children uh, with your background, uh, with the challenges uh, ahead of them uh, that you now have behind you, uh, that they will learn from that and look uh, at your life and the legacy that you're developing and you will leave to them that they will say, I too uh, can do that. Uh, that to me uh, is what it's all about, to live your life in such a way uh, that little children can look at you and says, I too uh, can do that. And so I want to thank you uh, for being who you are. Thank you for being what you are. And thank you uh, for giving me uh, one more experience in my life uh, that I can call a blessing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And thanks for your leadership and your support. It has been so helpful uh, in, in my time in, in Congress. I very much appreciate you. Very good. Thank you so much for being with us. Look forward to seeing you back on the Hill. See you on the Hill. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.